Well, hello and welcome to another edition of The Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with my co-host, Mr. Paul Nicolini, here from Harbor City Capital. And uh, looking forward to this interview, we've got Josh Lawler coming to us from the other coast. So we're here in Florida in our studios. Josh is on the West Coast joining us from Zuber Lawler. He's a partner there. And we're excited because I was looking down, cheating a little bit, looking ahead at some of the things that we're going to be discussing today and blockchain's one of them. I don't think we've had anybody so. on all of this season that's really dived into that Discussed. topic. Right, right. So and I'm I think he's one of the foremost experts on it, I think. So that's, that's what I'm reading. Looking so, forward to it. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that. So, yeah, let's jump in. Why don't you just give us a quick background of how you got started in the capital market space, and then we're going to dive into some of these other topics. Sure, absolutely. Um, so, you know, <laughs> talking about being a, uh, not knowing enough to know better, uh, when I was a, a second year attorney, which is I guess now almost 24 years ago, um, I went to Skadden Arps. Uh, and I spent six years working at Skadden Arps and mergers and acquisitions and finance. Uh, and you know, in that time really touched upon capital markets uh, constantly. Uh, and then when we went and we founded Zuber Lawler, um, took a little while for us to build up the infrastructure to do it. But now that we have done that, maybe the last 10 years or so, uh, we've been assisting clients in the capital markets also. Very cool. So tell us a little bit about some of the work that y'all do, what, what y'all specialty is, and, and really the value that you bring to the table. Absolutely. So, you know, our firm uh, and I are really working in what we think are future edge cases. Uh, so as you were mentioning, uh, we really focus a great deal on digital assets and securities token offerings as, as they're called. Uh, we also are extremely active in the cannabis space. Uh, we've worked with United States companies that have gone public in Canada and then cross-listed down to OTC uh, down here. So a lot of relationships with the Canadian Stock Exchange as well as the OTC folks who are a preferred provider. Uh, and we're really uh, pushing more into the traditional public securities work uh, in terms of you know Exchange Act compliance, which is gonna be one of the things that's critical in the digital asset space. So we're really focusing on that a great deal, as well as just initial issue or transactions. Obviously blockchain, and we'll get into that, is a sort of a democratized uh, way of dealing with a lot of different things, but especially with data and, and the flow of information and, and currency and that sort of things. But um, we had another guest on the show, we were talking about how much Reg A has democratized uh, capital raising and sort of that good old boys network um, that you know we've had some great guys from the broker dealer and RIA yeah. community on yeah. the, the deal flow show, but it's shaken things up a good bit. Um, how much of y'all's work you mentioned going into the traditional public markets, but how much of y'all's work is around that more of a reggae or crowdfunding type of capital raise? Sure. Um, so I'm going to distinguish between the two, you know, regulation A, tier two reg A being, you know, a viable real size deal capital market offering. The crowdfunding thus far has been limited to a million seventy thousand. And quite honestly, I, I don't get into that very frequently and don't know too much about it. Um, tier two reg A, though, from a digital asset perspective, is kind of the holy grail. Um, so we do uh, a lot in the space. Um, the ability to do an offering where you can have your asset uh, immediately tradable thereafter by you know, unaccredited investors is um, 
really kind of critical when you're talking about a digital asset that has a, a use case beyond being just a security. So, um, and forgive me if I dive into a little bit of, of technical here, with the digital assets that people are used to calling cryptocurrency, some people might call them utility tokens, not a huge fan of that term, but the idea is that these are assets where the fact that it's a security is the tail wagging the dog. It's an accident of US regulation that they're, they're regulated. Now, it's good that they're regulated. I'm not saying that it's not good because, you know, as we saw in 2017, when there's no regulation involved, there's serious inequality of information. Uh, and a lot of people who, you know, aren't central to the industry can do uh, things like mortgaging their house to buy a $20,000 Bitcoin. And that's, you know, that's not a good thing. Uh, so regulation is good. However, digital assets, and especially the ones that have a utility component, don't really lend themselves to an S1 registration framework. Uh, and they also, by their very nature, the utility typically requires a widespread of the digital assets. It doesn't work if you're only talking about accredited investors or a few investors. So, you know, there's a, a conundrum, if you will, for the issuer of, do I stay out of the United States entirely, which is usually the choice actually, uh, or do I try to you know, get these things out in a way that isn't going to violate US law, recognizing that may take a couple of years. And then there's regulation A, uh, and tier two reg A specifically, where if you can get your document qualified by the SEC, um, you know, theoretically at least, you should be able to do a fairly widespread public offering treating things as they are securities, which is usually my preference anyways. So the thing about that is it's only been done a couple times. Uh, and the first folks who did it Blockstack spent, according to them, over a million dollars getting through the reggae qualification process. Um, whereas, you know, ordinarily that ought to be somewhere between 100 and 200,000, including your marketing and everything, you know, soup to nuts. Um, so, you know, it, it's not what I would call a smooth path at this point, but it's a, it's a good path. It's a path I think that's going to be very valuable in the future. I love it. Yeah. I have a question though on that. Yeah. Uh, with, Bit, with Bitcoin or the tradable assets, but there was a time where it wasn't, the, it wasn't the digital asset. There wasn't, a, there was a time that you could not trade those, correct? In the beginning? And where are we now today in that process? Paul, it's all messed up. <laughs> Simple answer. <laughs> I can give you the, the, the problem, uh, the main problem, I think, is that everybody considers all these things effectively the same thing. And they're really not. Uh, you know, what, what a digital asset is, is an asset that's memorialized digitally. And from that perspective, you know, it's like saying a paper asset. Well, what is a piece of paper? You know, it's the share of IBM stock. It's a high yield note. It's a piece of toilet paper. It's, you know, whatever it is, they're all over the place. And digital assets are no different. So, you know, that, that loosely breaks down into things that really behave like commodities, things that behave like financial products or securities, uh, and some things that behave differently, behave as consumer items, behave as, uh, you know, there's something called a non-fungible token that is, you know, backing up, uh, validating art uh, and, products and things of that nature. So it's really all over the board, um, but our regulators for the most part haven't caught on to that. So where we are now, Bitcoin has been considered a commodity. You can trade Bitcoin pretty easily. 
There's a few others uh, that are like that. There's some that are playing in gray areas, uh, and there's some that are just completely outside the United States and afraid to go here. When you're talking about, and, and I, I think it's be a good idea for you to give an example of a digital asset, or you mentioned you don't like utility token, but some sort of an asset that has a utility component to it, where it's not just an investment in a potential appreciation, correct? That was the big, that was the big catch with the ICOs, right. the Wild West that we had right. two, two or three years ago. Um, and the ICO market, and then now where we have evolved to today. Could you kind of define that or give some examples of use cases with the sort of a durable, usable digital asset, I guess, if, that, if I could say? Sure. So here's the, the thing that's got everybody spun on this. A lot of the use cases require that the digital asset gain in value. So what, what's happening here, and Bitcoin's a good example of this, even though that's not a use case token, it's a medium of exchange, but in order for all this stuff to work, there's something called a consensus algorithm, which is you know, all the different distributed nodes run, you know, have the same copy of the ledger and run the same you know, calculation and spend compute resources, you know, RAM, electricity, all that kind of good stuff in order to make the system work and validate the transactions actually are the transactions that are supposed to happen. And those folks need to be incentivized to do that. There's got to be a business reason for them to do that. And what that reason is typically is that they receive additional tokens for doing so. And those additional tokens are useless to them unless they can convert them into fiat currency because you can't pay your taxes in Bitcoin, at least not yet. Um, in order to do that, you need a third party source of liquidity, which is an exchange. And once you're on an exchange, you've got speculators, you've got you know, supply and demand dynamics, which are designed to drive the value of these things up in value. So in a lot of cases, in most cases that you hear about, um, the fact of the matter is that even though it shouldn't be considered a security, it kind of is because it falls into this category of things that can be speculated on. And if it doesn't, then it tends to fall into the commodity world, which uh, for that is, I think, a little bit more appropriate. And, and I will give you an example of a good one. Um, this is one of our clients, so I'll mention, uh, which is a, a token called VeChain. Uh, they've got a, a VThor blockchain, and their use case uh, is a platform really for IoT and uh, tracking of different IoT devices, tracking of um, authenticity of some items, things of that nature. And they've got something of a two token structure and I won't get too into it because it's very technical, but one token is the token that people have, you know, bought for quite some time, uh, which, you know, is, is under VET. It's a top 50 token, I think. And then the VET token, if you have it, that actually emits something else, uh, which is a VThor token, which is actually what's used to run their blockchain. So that's how they set things up. And the, you know, the fact is, it's it's kind of like having an oil derrick and having oil in terms of that. And you know, you, you can speculate on either one of those. And you know, forgive me if that didn't come along perfectly clearly. It is kind of complicated, but I, hopefully you get the idea. Could I? Could it also be like oil, but you're also pulling gas or something else off of that that product? Because you're you, what you're saying is there's a there's a token that's sort of the investment side of it, and then there's a token that's more the use case, correct? Is that what you mean? Yeah, 
in, in that particular paradigm. So, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm going to play advocate for us guys who uh, may or may not have all the acronyms down. IOT is Internet of Things. Oh, right. I'm sorry. No, so, that's okay. Yeah, IOT is That's okay, but I, I just want to make sure people understand because what's exciting in that world of IOT, you got this massive distributed network and blockchain um, is made, you know, a match made in heaven for that. So it's really exciting. I'd also like you to distinguish between blockchain and cryptocurrency because sure. I think a lot of people just sort of package it all into the same right. ball of Play-Doh. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, so, you know, the, the hierarchy I use, you know, the, the top level is digital asset. That includes absolutely everything. Um, and digital ledger technology is kind of the top term in terms of the system that these things run on. And some of them are blockchains, and then there's other things that aren't, um, blockchain being the most prevalent, certainly. Um, within kind of blockchain, you've got different use cases. And one of the use cases is a medium of exchange. And this is Bitcoin. This is what Bitcoin first came out to do, was to actually serve as something that people could use in transactions. Turns out it's not great at that, but nonetheless, that is a cryptocurrency. You know, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, period, end of story. There are a number of tokens that also serve as mediums of exchange in particular systems. And those are definitely cryptocurrency. Um, and then there's a lot of gray space where people use the term and, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly, but some people will think of it as anything that you speculate on that's on an exchange. That's one way to look at it, certainly. Um, I don't think it's the best way to look at it. Um, I personally prefer to call financial products just, just digital assets or digital securities. Um, it makes life easier uh, in my world in terms of, you know, figuring out what should and shouldn't be regulated in different ways. Um, and then, you know, I'd be silly if I didn't mention the digital dollar project and certain other stable coins, which are digital assets that are pegged to real world assets. Um, so there's a few of those. The digital dollar is not out yet, but there is something called Tether. There's uh, USDC, and, and supposedly there are dollars in vault for each one of these tokens that are out there so that they maintain stable. Um, and the stable coin, as we call them, is critical to adoption of all this stuff for infrastructure because you can't have the level of volatility in cryptocurrency and expect that that's going to be something that's going to be used for commerce. It's just way too risky. Um, so enter the stable stablecoin. And um, if you'd heard about the Facebook Libra project that came out that Congress conducted the hearings on all that, that was a stablecoin that was pegged to a basket of different currencies. Um, and, you know, if you think through the implications of that, it's, it's actually kind of staggering uh, in terms of what that can do. So it's not surprising the government had issues. What are the guardrails for your stablecoin? In other words, in fact, it's ironic, but I literally looked up two days ago, most or least volatile cryptocurrencies 2020. That was my Google search like two days ago. So I want to ask, and, and I, I want to say Bitcoin was, and I think these were 2019 numbers, but Bitcoin was like three and a half, three point eight percent variance. Um, I don't know if that sounds about right, but what is an acceptable variance for a stable coin? Uh, well, the target is none. 
uh, of course. Um, and that's variance against the, what it's pegged to. So, you know, the dollar is going to vary against other currencies. And if, you know, your stable coin is pegged to the dollar, that should also. Now, you don't get that perfectly because what happens is depending on what the economy is doing and what the, the cryptocurrency trading world is doing, people may want to get out of cryptocurrency into something that is pegged to fiat currency. So on a particular exchange, the token that, you know, should be a dollar might be a dollar and two cents. It might be a dollar and five cents. And the reverse is true also. Suddenly everybody who's holding that wants to flow into, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or something else of that nature. Then, you know, Tether uh, or USDC might go down to 99 cents per. Um, and, you know, that's, that's from an exchange perspective. From a use case perspective, if, you know, I were to pay you for, you know, a cup of coffee or a coffee cup that says deal flow on it, um, you know, and you might have that as $2 and two tether is what it is. And I send you two tether and great. Then, you know, the tether is, is perfectly pegged. Um, so there's, there's a lot of context, uh, in all these things also. I'm going to switch a little bit and say, and ask a, a question, Josh, you have, you've had, um, over, I think a billion dollars in aggregate value through M and A transactions for clients. I think in an earlier phone call that we discussed. Yeah, in, in total, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so does one of those stand out and tell us a little bit about that and what, what, what entailed? You know, the, the exciting thing these days is the cannabis stuff. And I, I'd say, you know, probably a hair under uh, 500 million of transactions we did last year was, was cannabis related. Um, you know, of those, picking one that stands out is actually a little difficult because in, in this environment, they all have their, their nooks and crannies. Um, you know, one of the ones that, you know, we're particularly fond of uh, was figuring out how, you know, more of a mainstream fund that didn't want to be disclosed as investing in cannabis could invest in cannabis, recognizing that there are disclosure requirements in the state of California that say, everybody up and down the chain, right down to your LPs and your LP shareholders need to be disclosed uh, as, as owners or financial interest holders, unless they fit into particular categories of exclusion, things like blind trusts, holders of less than 5% public company, financial institutions. So we, we've had deals where, uh, because that, that interpretation hasn't been enforced yet, and still a lot of gray area, we'll set things up where, you know, you can have a deal, it's hundred million dollar deal. And, you know, it's set up in a way that we think will work to avoid disclosure. And then we've got to have almost another deal set up where it, it turns out we're wrong. We can unwind it uh, to, to avoid the disclosure or have some kind of a, you know, option call scenario or put scenario to kind of work with the regulation in that way. Um, so, you know, as you can imagine, when you're breaking new ground like that, uh, the negotiations can get very interesting. I'm like a dog with a bone on this whole blockchain and cryptocurrency so stuff. So I'm going to go right back to it in just a moment. But before we do, if you're watching or listening to this episode of the Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives, listen to our past episodes, as well as follow and subscribe to us to get future episodes of the show by going to the dealflowshow.com. 
thedealflowshow.com, thedealflowshow.com. Josh Lawler, um, we're going to jump right back to this question, but I'm going to tie the two together, I promise. So the cannabis space historically has had a challenge in banking their cash. It's a known fact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of the federal regulations that, that kind of, uh, I guess, contrast with state laws and how they're handling the industry. So how, how much has been done, uh, and I haven't even talked to anybody in this space in probably eight, 10 months, so there may have been a, a lot of development, but how much has been done, if any, utilizing ledger type assets, digital assets in this way to create an ecosystem to allow uh, businesses within that industry to sort of trade within themselves. I know years ago I was a part of a barter network and rather than, you know, I've got a cup and you've got a computer, can we trade or whatever, and you may or may not have what each other wants, they created an alternative currency, right? You had like a little bank account for your, your barter dollars. So has something been done in the crypto space or in the, the blockchain space to provide an alternative ledger asset that can sort of create a currency for people in the cannabis space? It's been tried. Uh, it's been proposed a number of times. Um, I've got one or two clients who would like to do it. Um, the, the problem you run into is sooner or later, you need inputs and outputs on the system. And when you're dealing in something like cannabis, which is illegal federally, you know, there's issues in terms of what a bank will take because they're concerned with, you know, satisfying their money laundering and know your customer requirements. Um, there's concerns about how do you pay taxes? Um, you know, literally there were some of these cannabis companies paying taxes in cash because they had no choice because they couldn't get banked. Uh, um, so, you know, that, that kind of was what it is. So, you know, if you, if you follow it through, um, it's, it's easy to set up something. It doesn't even have to be blockchain oriented. Um, I'm sure your barter network was, was not at, at that time, but it's easy to set up something with an internal currency it's very hard to then make that currency uh, able to be transacted into, into fiat. Now, what some folks have done is figured, okay, well, we can't do that. We'll transact from, from that to Bitcoin, and then from Bitcoin, we'll get it to an exchange, and from the exchange, we'll get it through. But um, that's, again, resulted in a real uh, explosion's the wrong word. A lot of attention focused on anti-money laundering, you know, your customer regulations and things of that nature which banks have been living with for a long time, of course, but they've really gotten very careful, as they should, about when they need to file suspicious activity reports and things of that nature. Um, There's been kind of an expansion of uh, requirements to register as a money service business or money transmitter to types of businesses that maybe didn't think that they had to do that. Um, so the, the short version is, yeah, it's been tried. It, it's not that easy. Um, that's kind of where that is. When you're coming to the deal table, and I'm going to take you back as far as you want to go back in your legal career, could be capital markets, mm-hmm. but you're starting to put this together. You're bringing in, uh, you know, maybe you've been hired for a particular merger acquisition or whatever, but you're at the table. What are some of the things that you look for in your process, how do you go through your deal evaluation process? Sort of your checks and, and uh, you know crossing the T's and dotting the I's. So first thing, bar none, is is context. What is the business purpose for the transaction? Um, if you don't know that, you've got nothing. Uh, so you you need to 
understand the business uh, from an operational perspective and from a cash flow perspective at least fairly well. Uh, you, you can't get a, around that piece. And in some industries, that's easy, and in some, it's very hard. Um, once you've got that set, um, you know the the next thing is I look for number one is tax structure. And in an M and A transaction, it's not quite as key in a finance transaction. Um, and uh, then also, um, you know, just existential risks to the deal. Are there third party consents that need to happen? Is there a government permitting process? Those types of things. Once you've got kind of that landscape down, then you can go into, you know, from, from the law perspective, it, it's really identifying risk uh, and quantifying to the extent you can and presenting choices to the client. And that's the whole, you know, representation and warranty process. Um, you, you know, you have to think about post-transaction if you're buy side, what does the integration process look like? If you're sell side, you know, how few strings attached can you get before you, you know, get to take your, your consideration? Is that consideration in stock? Is it public stock? How do you get liquid? Those types of things, which, you know, a lot of lawyers may look at those things and think, well, that's, that's business oriented. That's the, you know, your, your client's job, or that's the financial advisor's job. But, you know, you can't really effectively guide somebody through a transaction unless you know those things, unless you know, you know, what you're trading off uh, in exchange to get what it is you, you think you need. And, you know, to use really basic examples, you know, some deals uh, on buy side and the buyer's trying to buy a distribution network. And yeah, there's a product that's being distributed, but they don't really care about that product. They don't care about the intellectual property that goes along with that product. And they certainly don't want to spend legal fees and time validating the intellectual property on the product that they don't care about in the first place when really all that matters is the distribution channel. The reverse happens also. Sometimes the deal is entirely to pick up intellectual property or to be able to pick up a group of engineers and developers that happens a lot in the software space, in which case, you know, you don't necessarily care what the, the sales were if they're going to be repurposed anyways. Um, but at the same time, if you tell most attorneys who are doing an M&A transaction that there's a situation where you don't care what the sales were, you know, and working capital doesn't matter, most of them aren't going to look at you like you're from Mars. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the difference between doing this stuff well and doing it adequately, I suppose. With that being said, too, Josh, there's so many moving parts in, in M&A transactions or deals or what have you. What are some of the deal breakers for you? <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, pushing into the cannabis activity, anybody who hasn't paid their taxes in three years, um, that, that's a big problem. Uh, and that, that happened a lot uh, when they couldn't get banked and they were cash businesses. Uh, so, you know, that, that took a lot of folks out. That's a big example. Illegal activity is always a big example. Um, on the, uh, you know, a note of advice for anybody selling a company, um, shaky financials and big ad backs uh, to, to, you know, calculate EBITDA. Um, that type of thing spooks buyers badly and should spook buyers. You know, if, if there's a feeling like there's, you know, not, you know, genuine compliance with due diligence, uh, then, you know, that, that's, that's really, uh, there's no way around that. Um, you know, sometimes we'll see third party consents as being difficult. Um, we've had transactions where, you know, a smaller company was trying to buy a, a carve out of a bigger company 
there were long-term leases involved and the landlords didn't want to give permission for the transfer because the smaller company was, was less credit worthy. Um, you know, it, how do you, how do you fight with that? Well, we ended up working up some extremely, um, let's call them customized deals where, you know, our larger client ended up guaranteeing some of the smaller clients obligations for a couple of years. They really, we, we didn't want to do that. We really didn't want to do that, but it was the only way the deal was going to get done. And, and that would have killed the deal otherwise. One of my favorite books early in my entrepreneurial career was a book called Direct from Dell by Michael Dell, where he talked about the early days of Dell Computer. I want to talk about a favorite quote and ask you a question in just a moment. But if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Dill Flow Show, you can get access to our archives, previous episodes, as well as follow and subscribe us to get access to our future episodes by going to thedillflowshow.com. Josh Lawler from Zuber Lawler. And uh, out on the West Coast, California, sitting, got a beautiful view there in the background here amidst this COVID environment. So um, one of, I had a quote that, from the book, and I paraphrase, but he said basically that the more mistakes we made early in the days of Dell, the more mistakes we made, the more um, setbacks we faced, the faster we grew. And so I made it my mission, my vision to make as many mistakes as fast as possible, knowing that that would get us to where we were trying to go. There's not an entrepreneur, a business builder, builder a deal maker, an attorney, anyone at the table today that is successful that hasn't had their fair share of setbacks or failures or challenges. What is your approach? Because it becomes kind of a mental game, right, at that point when uh, a deal hits the wall or uh, a project or something, what is your process for dealing with that, resetting, moving forward? Sure. So, yeah, you know, the phrase move fast and break things is very popular on our coast as far as uh, the, the venture capital guys. That, that's what I was kind of getting to before about risk. Um, our, our job as attorneys, or one of them, is, is to try to point out and quantify the risk. Um, and then, you know, it's our clients, you know, assuming we're not talking about illegal activity, it's our clients, you know, decision as to whether that's an acceptable amount of risk or not. And, you know, how big of a mistake do you want to put yourself potentially on the line for, um, you know, companies that are, are cash starved, you know, they, they make all kinds of mistakes. They make deals with the devil to, to get cash flow going. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just kind of the, the way that it is. Um, so, you know, there's something to that. Now, our firm started with two guys in a kitchen and no clients. Um, I, I was not one of those two guys. I told my friend Tom Zuber that he was out of his tree and stayed at Skadden Arps for a while longer. Um, but um, we started with two guys and no clients, and we went through the entire growth process. We've, you know, been there when, you know, it's payrolls tomorrow and you don't know where the money's coming from and how are you going to figure that one out. Um, you know, we've, we've gone through the whole good help is hard to find thing. We've gone through the, you must, you know, build the administrative infrastructure before you actually need it in order to grow a certain way. And yeah, that's scary. So, you know, I, I can identify with what Michael Dell is saying there. Obviously he's done it a heck of a lot more than I have. Um, and you know, as a lawyer, uh, it makes a difference because our job is not to get in the way. Um, you know, we like to say at our firm that we find solutions, not problems. Um, because you know, 
any issue spotting lawyer that's not going to find a solution is, you know, that's a person who's likely to kill a deal that maybe doesn't need to kill. Uh, you and I met a few years ago at a conference in New York, and this sounds weird saying back in the days of the conferences, doesn't it? <laughs> how is it? How is <laughs> that's weird saying that? How has COVID affected you and your business? I actually, I almost feel guilty sometimes. If anything, it's been it's been helpful for us. Um, you know, we basically had everybody go home with their workstations. We're a law firm. People can do what they do from home. It now appears they can do what they do from anywhere, uh, which is, you know, kind of a nice thing. Um, and we haven't had any productivity drop at all. Um, for the first couple months, there was a little bit of a slowdown in deal flow uh, because nobody knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, I had one, one sell side middle market client that we closed their, uh, their business sale uh, on uh, one of the first days of March. And they were just so unbelievably thrilled because they, they were staring at it and didn't know if this thing was going to go through. And it was, you know, generational wealth uh, for a family type of thing. So uh, they, were, they were quite happy with it. Um, a lot of our practice is international. Um, you know, we've been a Zoom culture uh, or Teams culture for quite some time. Um, and, you know, to some degree, it's made things easier because now everybody understands and knows how to use the technology. So, you know, yesterday morning I was on with Russia. It's not unusual for us to be on with, with Israel or Europe or South America. Um, so, you know, communicating with our Phoenix office, no problem. The litigators have it harder, uh, no question. But fortunately, I am not one of them, so I'm not going to worry about that. Uh, too much at the moment. Interesting. So uh, a lot of people that have come on the show or several people that have come on the show have talked about the same thing, that it's changed the dynamics of the deal process, certainly capital raising, but it's also made it faster, easier, more efficient, where you have people doing road shows virtually now and knocking out 75 presentations in a month or so where they no way you could have hopscotched across the United States. And I guess you could have, but it would have been like everybody dealt with in the past, where it was just absolutely exhausting and a drain on resources financially as well as physically. Um, so, yeah, I, and I know I'll probably, I don't know if I should say this, but I've said to people that in certain industries, let's say, that this whole COVID fiasco, whatever you want to call it, has been kind of the gift that keeps on giving in some ways because, yeah. and I see your eyes because we're, we're careful not to say things that we get quoted on, but uh, maybe we can get Jesse to cut that out. But the fact is, is that in, in life and in business, you have to make the best of circumstances. And that's what it really comes down to is uh, either, either you stop and you die or you adapt. And, you know, I, we've heard the, the quote that necessity is the mother of invention or innovation. I mean, that's we're, we're being forced to change the way we do business. I mean, we've got a table here that we would have easily accommodated you here, but we're able to do this digitally. So we're excited about that as well. Um, anything outside of, of the business world that you're involved in, causes you care about, um, projects, anything like that, that you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, well, you know, family is first, uh, obviously, uh, or it should be obvious. And I've got a, a wonderful wife and two kids who I've told not to come into this room while we're recording this, uh, and, a, and a colleague. Uh, and I'm very fortunate that I, I work with my best friends also. So, you know, that's, that's wonderful. Um, you know, as far as outside interests that I would say are 
you know, really for for the the good of the the planet. Um, I'm fortunate that my work dovetails with them. I am a huge evangelist for blockchain technology and application across all kinds of different things because you know it, it really does democratize a lot of things. It, you know, in the capital raising world, it, it opens up the possibilities to a lot of people who did not have that possibility before. If it's you know done correctly and safely, um, you know it's doing amazing things in you know undeveloped countries also. Um, on the cannabis front, you know it's it's plant medicine. Um, and, you know, it, it's taken me years to, to get, you know, enough understanding, but, you know, the fact of the matter is there are pharmaceuticals being derived from this type of stuff that, that help people. Um, you know, it's, it's not just kind of recreational, go out and get stoned. So I, I feel very fortunate uh, that I'm, you know, compelled really uh, as part of my job to, to handle those types of things. Um, you know, beyond that, um, you know, recognizing there's a limited number of hours in, in the day. Um, you know, what's what's going on? Our, our, I don't know if you guys are aware, our firm is a minority-owned entity. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking of, about, you know, uh, diversity and inclusiveness. Um, and, you know, it's been for long enough time now that, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a white guy. Um, but, you know, I care about our firm doing well because it sets an example. Um, and in kind of where we are now as a country with, you know, the protests and everything else, I think that's important. Um, so that matters. Talk to me about the eyeballs, because anytime I talk to someone about reggae or in this case, whether it's reggae tied to some sort of uh, digital ledger asset, as you talked about, where do you get the eyeballs the investors, the people who, you know, mom and pop put their money, grandma pulls their money out of the sock or whatever, that invest in these kind of deals, all the way up to, I know family offices and others that have put money into the space, but where do you get in front of the people? How do you collectively access this willing and able group of people out there that'll put money into these deals? Sure. So, um, First off, there's two sides of this. There's the the investors, and there's also the folks raising the funds. Um, and, and certainly, from the raising the funds perspective, uh, life gets a lot easier. From from the investor perspective, um, you know what we tend to think of, and I say we as kind of the the kind of blockchain, you know, ecosystem, if you were, or you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it, it's going to be adopted when people don't know they're using. It. And, you know, blockchain technologies like the internal combustion engines or the, or the silicon chip, you know, you, you don't have to understand how it works to use it. You don't even have to know it's there to use it. Uh, and, you know, the industry right now is at a place where user interfaces are what matters. Now, against that background, if you've got, you know, legislation that allows for a portal, you know, for investors to look into, particularly for an accredited investor portal, because uh, we're all used to that. Um, you know, at that point, it's the same thing it's always been as far as, you know, attracting uh, folks into it. Where things get interesting is, again, that, you know, that Regulation A spot um, that allows you to do, you know, a, a transaction with, you know, a, an unlimited number of unaccredited investors subject to saying, that, you know, you're going to handle certain regulatory obligations and, you know, report your numbers going forward and all that. Um, that's going to make life uh, a lot easier. You know, on the investor side, um, I, I, I you know, do have to throw out a word of caution. 
it's not always a good thing to make that easier. There's a lot of discussion about opening up, you know, different venture capital investments to, you know, the mom and pops. Well, you know, nine out of 10 of those fail. Uh, you know, venture capital fund model is, you know, have one big, big hit that makes up for the, you know, all the misses. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily the best thing. I think that, you know, the role of the financial advisor is not going away. Uh, the role of the, the broker dealer is not going away. Um, certainly from a technology perspective, both of those things could happen. Uh, but it, it's, it's a really bad idea for them to happen. Um, so, you know, hopefully costs are reduced. Um, I know on the, on the broker dealer side uh, of securities transactions, the whole T plus three settlements and custody and transfer agents and quite frankly, DTCC, um, that stuff is all extraneous now, um, or could be, uh, and that will make things less expensive. Uh, and, you know, hopefully a little bit easier and less arcane. So from that perspective, I think it, it, it's a very big deal. That's wonderful. It really is. Um, you obviously work with a purpose, Josh, and that's really good to see. What are some of the goals that you're still reaching for now? Can you tell us about that? You know, our, our firm, as I mentioned, started with two guys in a kitchen. In 10 years, I think we want to be 200 people. Uh, that's, that's kind of what we're targeting at. Uh, and growth is hard. Uh, good growth is very hard. Um, so that's, that's kind of a major goal. Um, personally, uh, you know, I've already mentioned it. I, I want to do transactions that are good for business, but also good for people. And I want to do a lot of them. Uh, that's, that's, that's really the goal. When we do the show, we sit around, in fact, you and Daniel, our producer, had a call with one of our previous guests, a couple of partners in a firm today, talking about how we might be able to assist them connecting the dots, uh, what, there's about $30 million, 30-something million dollars worth of deal flow available yeah. in that one yeah. conversation today. There are going to be people that are going to watch this, They're going to, their minds are going to be set off, they want to connect with you. What kind of people would you like to connect with from our network, from the Deal Flow Show Network, um, as well as our audience? The first thing that you know, I want is people who, who are genuine and not, not trying to profit illegally, so it's a good thing. Um, putting that aside, uh, you know, sophisticated persons, persons who you know, really know their businesses really well on the sell side, persons doing repeat transactions uh, on the buy side or, you know, who have, you know, solid strategic reasons for acquisitions, it, you know, it, it just makes life you know, easier as far as who to work with. Um, obviously, I'm a service provider, so I like people who can pay the bill, but that's, you know, its own, <laughs> its own thing. Beyond that, you know, it, it's really fairly, fairly open. Um, you know, some of our best clients, you would not have thought when they walked in the door. Um, some of our worst clients look, you know, like everything is just fantastic and super flashy and, and everything else. Um, so, you know, the thing really is not to, not to prejudge. I, I will say it, it helps to have people come in who value legal services. Um, you know, when, when you see what legal services cost for a lot of people, it looks like it's very, very, very expensive. Um, we like to think, and I think we are value add that, you know, we'll certainly save you more than, than our fee costs. Um, but, you know, some people 
just don't value the service. And if you just don't value the service, then, you know, everybody likes to be appreciated, right? Absolutely. Uh, what was it, the old joke, the guy that runs the help wanted ad looking for a wife with a boat said, please send picture of boat. <laughs> so so when, when, if people are on, on the show, listening to the show, we're talking to people, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Could be phone number, website, email, whatever. Right. So e email is the best way to reach out to me personally. And it's just my first initial and last name, uh, J Lawler, L-A-W-L-E-R, uh, at Zuber Lawler, uh, Z like zebra, U E like boy, E-R-L-A-W-L-E-R.com. Uh, we've got a website people can look at. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, also. Uh, I don't tweet too frequently, but some. Um, but we're, we're pretty easy to find. Excellent. Well, Josh Lawler, glad to have you on the show. I, we covered a lot, but we're going to come back in private conversation and talk about some of this. I know our CTO, uh, is Jay Benoit, is sitting off screen over here on the edge of his seat because this is a lot of the same topics he and I have talked about in terms of digital assets. He's been involved in the cryptocurrency space, the, the blockchain space, um, and, and we've talked about Harbor City being a part of that space with something related to data and the lead generation um, assets that we mm -hmm. produce in our business model. So eager to come back and talk to you about that more in depth in a new, another conversation in the future. Um, for now, if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives as well as subscribe and follow us for future episodes by going to The Deal Flow Show. Dot com on behalf of myself, Mr. Paul Nicolini, my co-host here, and Josh Lawler from Zuber Lawler uh, in California. We will see you again in another episode very, very soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Bye -bye. Josh. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.